Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your, your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I don't think I've ever been in the pulpit this early. I think I'm going to take advantage of it. That just gave me seven more minutes. That's incredible. Now, a man decided to write a book about churches around the country, and so what he decided to do was travel to the West Coast and start in San Francisco and just go to every major metropolis and visit a congregation there and then write a book about the churches he visited. Well, when he was in San Francisco... He came to a congregation that had a golden phone in its lobby. And the sign at the base of the golden phone said, $10,000 a minute. So he went and found the preacher and asked the preacher what the phone was all about. And the preacher said, that is a direct line to heaven. If you're willing to pay the price, you can talk directly to heaven. The man thought that was a little strange, but he said, thank you for your time, for telling me about this phone, and went about his business. He traveled to the next city. He traveled to Seattle. Guess what? He found another church with that exact same golden phone in the lobby. He ended up traveling to Denver, to Chicago, to New York, to Boston, all over the country, and found churches that had this golden phone in the lobby that said $10,000 a minute. Well, then he traveled to Atlanta, Georgia. And he found a congregation in Atlanta that had the same golden phone, but it said 10 cents a minute. So he had to find the preacher and ask why the cost was so different. And the preacher said, well, son, you're in the South. It's a local call. <laughs> now, I start with that humor for this simple reason. Don't we all wish heaven was a little bit closer sometimes? Don't we all, to some degree, have a craving for heaven, for it to be accessible and immediate? You know, unfortunately, I think for many of us, we go through this life with the wrong mindset about heaven. We, we go through this life like the man who was walking to uh, the church building with a preacher and asked the preacher what he was going to preach on that night, and the preacher said, well, I'm going to preach on heaven. And, and the man said, or the man, I'm sorry, the man had a very disappointed look on his face. And the preacher asked, well, what's wrong? The man said, well, I, I just hoped you'd preach on something relevant tonight. You know, I think far too many of us view heaven as some distant, far-off place that will matter one day in the future, but it has no relevance for today. And that's the wrong mindset toward heaven. You see, one preacher said, if your view of heaven isn't practically helpful, it probably isn't doctrinally faithful. And I think that's a bold statement. Because the authors of the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, they viewed heaven not just as some future hope, but as a present help. 
So look again at Colossians chapter 3 in the first two verses that we read just a moment ago. If then you have been raised with Christ, that's talking to the vast majority of us today. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Instead of that phrase, set your mind on the things that are above, another translation uses the phrase, set your sight on things above. And another translation says, focus your mind on things above. The idea is that we should fix our eyes on heaven. See, we all fixate on something. We all fixate on something. Some of us fixate on our families. Some of us have our eyes tuned to and focused on our families and, and, and what they need and how we can provide for them and care for them. Some of us are fixated on our jobs. Some of us are fixated on our income and on our success and on our achievements and on how we can get better. Some of us are fixated on college football. Are we not? Some of us are, are fixated on our teams and, and their success and their failure and their roster and their players and their recruiting and their coaches and everything that comes with it. Some of us are fixated on our hobbies and our interests and, and these things we do on the weekend. Some of us are, are fixated on how we can lower our golf score or how we can catch bigger fish or how we can shoot that deer this year. We all have a fixation, and I'm not saying any of those things are bad or wrong or evil. I'm just saying we all have something that we fixate on. But what Scripture is saying should be our number one fixation. What Scripture is saying we should set our minds up on is heaven. And as we enter, and I'm proud to say we're entering the last two months of 2020, as we enter the last two months of 2020, we are preparing for this year to go away. And, and I'm sure all of us are ready for this year to go away. But that also means we're drawing to a close with the theme we set in place at the start of this year, which was vision. And what I want to do with the last two months we have of this year is instead of focusing on the past or focusing on the present, I want us to focus on the future. I want us to turn our attention to heaven for the last two months of this year because heaven provides a present help now, just not, not just a future hope then. Because if we'll fix our eyes on heaven, then it will fix a lot of things in our lives today. And my guess is that there are a lot of people here today who could use some fixing. Because life is hard. And a lot of us are broken down and in need of some repair right now. And this morning, I want to show you some ways that fixing our eyes on heaven can help us. First and foremost, fixing our eyes on heaven helps us insist on different values. You may remember last year we did a study of the book of 1 Peter, and it was called, the study itself was called Strange, and we looked at how Peter emphasized strangeness in that letter. 
You can look at his letter and see how he refers to Christians as strangers in this world and how he calls on Christians to be strange in this world. But I want you to particularly notice what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, Peter instructs Christians to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Or as another translation says, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, what Peter is saying doesn't mean that we should go through life never making friends or meeting people. What, what Peter is saying is that we should so fix our eyes on heaven that our values are different than the world's. Let me give you a few examples of, of what I'm talking about. If you fix your eyes on heaven, then you're going to have a different perspective about money. See, we live in a world that is all about financial accumulation. We live in a world that is focused on wealth. But if your eyes are fixed on heaven, then financial accumulation is not going to be your primary goal. Spiritual accumulation is going to be your primary goal. That's because when you read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, when you read what he has to say about finances, you quickly understand that what really matters is treasures in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, if your focus is on heaven, then you're going to heed what Jesus has to say about accumulation. You'll see a difference between what is real treasure and what is fake treasure. Between what is durable and what is disposable. It will change your perspective of money. And if you fix your eyes on heaven, it will also change your perspective of people. You will have a different view of people. See, the world operates differently than does the kingdom of God. If you're fixated on heaven, then you'll start realizing that investing in people is the best way to spend your life because people are the only commodity that will transition into the next life. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 16. It's there that Paul gives the instruction for us to regard no one according to the flesh. Another translation says, regard no one from a worldly point of view. In other words, if you're fixated on heaven, then you'll recognize the value of each soul. And that will impact how you treat and even interact with people. If you fix your eyes on heaven, then it's going to change the way you view people. It's also going to change the way you view happiness. This world operates on the principle of instant gratification, on what one preacher called right now thinking. And the world's been operating that way for a long time. Think about Esau for a moment. 
Esau sold his birthright so he could get a hot meal right now. David compromised his relationship with God and his kingdom so he could enjoy the embrace of another man's wife right now. Judas betrayed Jesus so that he could make a profit right now. The world operates with this desire, this impatience for what they want. When you're focused on heaven, when your eyes are fixed on heaven, you come to understand that waiting is part of the happiness. Excuse me on that. That waiting is part of the process of receiving true happiness. You understand something called delayed gratification. And you'll make choices not on what makes you happy right now, but what will bring you joy for all eternity. And as a result, you'll learn to be content with such things as you have, as the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. But you can't achieve that kind of contentment unless your eyes are fixed on heaven. See, if your eyes are fixed on heaven, then you're going to have some different values, some different priorities, some different perspectives in life. And you won't reduce your life to a purpose that aligns itself with this world. You know, that was the great mistake of the rich fool. He's talked about in a parable in Luke chapter 12, between verse 16 and 21. And this rich fool, he had so much stuff that he tore down the barns he stored that stuff in to build bigger barns so he could store more stuff. This guy had a real stuff problem. And what he failed to realize, what he failed to recognize, is that stuff wasn't going to get him anywhere. Because shortly after building those bigger barns, he died. And God called him a fool. And he wasn't a fool so much because of his materialism. Yes, that is a reason he was a fool. But in particular, in this parable, he was a fool because of his temporalism because he knew he was going to die one day but yet he never lived ready for it he focused on the temporary instead of the eternal and we can be guilty of living temporally just like the rich fool if our eyes aren't fixed on heaven and so heaven helps us right now because it helps us insist on different values than the world has. But that's not the only way that heaven helps us. Fixing our eyes on heaven also helps us exist with less stress. <laughs> As I prepared this point, and I have to admit the main points, I didn't come up with these on my own. I, I actually obtained these from another sermon I heard. I loved them. But as I came to this one, I had to wrestle with this. I don't say wrestle correctly. I say it like I'm from the South. I typically say wrestle. So I have to actually think through that term before I say it. I wrestled with this one. This one was tough. Heaven helps us exist with less stress. Now, how is that possible? 
because when you fix your eyes on heaven, it makes you realize that most of the things that stress you out in this life are trivial. Look at what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. Paul said, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's saying that, that the stresses of this life are trivial. He calls them light and momentary troubles. That's because he's focused on that which is unseen and eternal rather than that which is seen and temporal. And I think that kind of focus is the reason Jesus was able to endure the cross. Do you remember the emotional and mental turmoil Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane just moments before his arrest? Luke describes it this way in chapter 22 and verse 44. Luke says that Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus was agonizing about his impending crucifixion. So much so that he experienced a rare medical condition called hematidrosis. I didn't just make that up. It is a real thing. Hematidrosis is the excretion of blood or blood pigment in the sweat. It's a very rare condition that occurs under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. So yes, Jesus knows what it's like for you and I to be stressed out. In fact, he probably knows far more about stress than you and I ever will. And just knowing this little detail about Jesus' medical condition, it gives us a greater insight into just how deep his anxiety over Calvary really was. And so he asked God to take that burden away. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus was stressed. He was agonizing over what he was about to endure at the cross. But then we're told something in Hebrews chapter 12 that fascinates me. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, we're told that Jesus was willing to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. In other words, his eyes were fixated on the joy that would be his in the end when he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He looked past the torture and torment and agony that was Calvary and looked forward to the joy and the gladness and the glory that would be his enthroned in heaven again. You see, fixing his eyes on heaven was at least part of the solution for Christ's stress reduction. 
And if it's good enough for him, then certainly it's good enough for us. See, our problem is that we get bent out of shape over things that will not pass the eternity test. What we need to do is start treating our stresses in life like it's an airport. Now, I've been to Hartsville-Jackson Airport on quite a number of occasions, like many of you. Sometimes for my own travel, sometimes to pick up or transport family and friends who are in the area. But despite the number of times I've been to our airport, I couldn't describe to you how it's decorated. It's hard enough for me to remember which concourse Chick-fil-A is on, much less for me to recall what color the carpet is, what kind of decor is on the walls of the concourses, what kind of lighting is used. I can't tell you those things. I can tell you how to get there. I can tell you that you're going to have to go underground and get to one of these four, five, six concourses. I can't remember how many, Carlos, you could tell me. I can tell you some of those things, but I don't know the details about the airport. Do you know why? Because I don't concern myself that much with places that I'm only staying at for a little while. I don't concern myself with places that are just a stop on my way home. Maybe that's the mindset we need to adopt toward this whole earth, to this whole planet that one day is going to be destroyed. And we need to stop being so concerned about things that aren't going to pass the eternity test. I mean, some of the things we stress ourselves out about and I speak as a guilty party, as I mentioned just last week. Some of the things we stress ourselves out about won't even pass the 10-year test, much less an eternity test. What I mean is some of the things we stress ourselves out about won't matter 10 years from now, much less over the span of eternity. And so Jesus modeled for us A mindset that understands fixation on heaven. And for him, it was a stress reducer. Maybe if we'll fix our eyes on heaven instead of this earth, it will help us exist with less stress too. Not only that, but fixing our eyes on heaven will help us persist through trials as well. There's a, there's a legend about Satan holding a garage cell. And on the tables of his garage cell, he put his most effective tools from his career of tempting and tormenting souls. There was a big price for lust, but not nearly as much for gossip. Of course, pride was through the roof, but there was one item well used, kind of unimpressive looking, it cost more than every other tool on those tables. And Satan was asked about that item. He said, this is my most effective tool. When sloth and envy and greed and lust can't make a dent, when even pride can't find a foothold, 
this almost always works. I have brought down more saints with this tool than any other. And he was asked, what is it? He said, discouragement. Now, while that story isn't true, it is true that discouragement is one of the devil's most effective devices. Just think about how he used it to prevent a generation of Israelites from advancing to the promised land. You can go back to Numbers chapter 13. God sends 12 spies into Canaan to bring back a report. A report that God himself did not need, for he already knew what was there. But a report that he knew would be beneficial in two ways to the Israelites. If you recall, that report was unanimous on one thing. The land was fantastic. The land was as perfect of a land as you could find. All of the spies agreed that it was great land. God wanted the Israelites to hear that. God wanted the Israelites to know that he wasn't just taking them to some barren wasteland. He was taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey. But the other thing they reported back, they had to report back on the military installations of the land, on the size of the population, on the difficulty of taking it. And I think God wanted them to report on that as well because he wanted the Israelites to realize that they couldn't possess the land without him. Now what ends up happening, if you look at Numbers chapter 13, is that 10 of the 12 spies bring back an incredibly negative report about taking the land. They say, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are, in verse 31. In verse 32, they continue by saying, the land is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. In verse 33, they say, We seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And their report, their report about this promised land so discouraged the Israelites that in chapter 14 of Numbers, and the first four verses, we're told these things. We're told that the Israelites wept all night, that they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and that they decided to choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And the consequence of their rebelliousness in this moment was that they didn't get to go to the promised land. An entire generation missed out on the promised land because they were so discouraged by the report of these ten spies. You know, the trials and the difficulties of this life have a way of doing the same thing to us. Maybe that's been your year for 2020. One discouragement after another. One of the ways that heaven can help us is by keeping us from getting so discouraged when life gets hard. At least that's what it did for Paul. If you look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, he said, For I consider 
the, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, what we're going through right now, are not worthy, are not worth comparing to the glory that we will receive in the future. Now don't get me wrong, fixing your eyes on heaven isn't going to erase all the pain of this life, but it will give you leverage over it so you won't give up when things get difficult. In other words, our focus on heaven will serve as a constant source of encouragement to keep persevering. We'll go into more detail about this in future lessons, but think about the descriptions we have of heaven. Heaven's described as a place of rest in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. When the, when the physical and mental and emotional toil of this life starts to overwhelm us, we can look to this description of heaven and be reminded that we're migrating toward a place of perfect eternal rest. But you know what? There's no way, there's no way we could appreciate heaven's rest if we didn't first experience the world's weariness. So when life beats you down, remember that heaven is a place of perfect rest and don't give up your ticket there. Don't abandon the trip like those Israelites did when they got discouraged. We're also told that heaven is a place of unity. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And look at what he said. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I know most of you are probably more familiar with John 14, talking about you getting your own personal mansion. I'm sorry, that may not be exactly how heaven works out. I think it's more consistent that heaven is one giant house that we are all living in. Because heaven is a place of perfect unity. And as we've seen in 2020, more so than in any year before, or at least during my lifetime, more so than any year before, we could use a little unity. Because we exist in a world that is in its fallen state has proven to be divisive and argumentative. And so we would not appreciate heaven's unity if we didn't experience disunity down here. But when life gets you down and you're discouraged, remember the place you're pointed toward. Remember where you're headed to a place of permanent unity. You know what? Heaven is described as a place of perfection. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 16, John described heaven as a city laid out as a square with its length, breadth, and height all equal. 
In verse 27, he added that heaven was a place where nothing unclean would ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Those descriptions are intended to show us that heaven lacks flaws, that heaven is a place of total perfection. You know, when all the flaws and the failures of this world frustrate and worry and dishearten us, we can turn our attention to the place where those things will no longer exist. But like I've said, we would not appreciate heaven's perfection unless we first endured the earth's imperfection. See, all that is to say that heaven helps us because it gives us an aim. If we fix our eyes on heaven, if we keep our focus on the end goal, there is encouragement there. Recognizing just how glorious heaven will be can prevent our discouragement in this life. But there's one final way I want to mention that heaven can help us. Heaven, fixing our eyes on heaven, helps us resist worldly compromise. It's very easy to want to be like the world. But we've already referenced Peter's letter where he calls on us to be strangers in this world. And if you return to his letter, you go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look at verse 11 and 12, you'll see that Peter instructs us to abstain to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against their soul and to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among those outside the kingdom. The whole point there is is that he's instructing us to not sell out, to not compromise ourselves, to not be like the world. Do you know what the greatest enemy to the church is today? In my opinion, the greatest enemy of the church today is not persecution. It's accommodation. Accommodation is when the church looks so much like the world that there's nothing to persecute. And accommodation was a problem in the first century church. You can go to Revelation chapter 3 and read about a congregation in Sardis. And in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, Jesus told this church, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now why does Jesus call them a dead church? Is it because nobody goes there anymore? No. If you read the entirety of that particular letter to the church in Sardis, you'll notice that unlike some of the other congregations to whom Jesus sent letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the church in Sardis received no commendation for their endurance in the face of persecution. They weren't praised for enduring persecution. In fact, Jesus never mentioned persecution for that congregation in the entirety of the letter. That seems to indicate that the church in Sardis wasn't under attack. And the reason the Sardis congregation wasn't under attack is because the enemy does not waste its time attacking the dead. 
You see, if you look at verse 4 of Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. In other words, Jesus just indicated that most of the Christians in Sardis had soiled their garments. Or to put it another way, most of the Christians in Sardis had become polluted by the world. And that's a problem because it contradicts the instruction that we're given in James chapter 1 and verse 27. In James 1 27, we're told that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, when we think about that verse, we, we tend to really emphasize the, the care of orphans and widows and forget that part of undefiled religion is to keep yourself unstained from the world, to not look like the world, to not conform to the world. So as one commentator said about the church in Sardis there in Revelation chapter 3, he said there was no persecution in Sardis because there was no invasion of enemy's territory. The church was dying there, but it wasn't because the enemy was attacking it. The church was dying in Sardis because the church was voluntarily allowing the enemy to invade their territory. The church in Sardis was no longer maintaining their separation from the world. And the world will leave the church alone when the world can't recognize who the church is. See, conforming to the world, compromising with the world, accommodating the world is very easy. How are we going to maintain our distinctiveness amidst a world that is always trying to lure us in? Well, one way we do that is by focusing on heaven. Fixing our eyes on heaven. See, there is some help that heaven gives us today. Heaven helps us exist with less stress. Heaven helps us insist on different values. Heaven helps us persist through trials, and heaven helps us resist worldly compromise. But the only way heaven can help us is if we fix our eyes in its direction. One of the greatest swimmers of the last century was a woman named Florence Chadwick. She set and broke long-distance swimming records for women and men. In 1950, she crossed the English Channel faster than any other woman in history. A year later, she crossed it again, this time swimming against the current, which was something no woman had ever done. On July 4th of 1952, she set her sights on becoming the first woman to swim the 26 miles between Catalina Island and the California mainland. She swam for 15 hours in the frigid Pacific waters. But what happened during that time is a fog settled in over the bay, a fog so dense she couldn't see the coastline 
anymore. And so after 15 hours of swimming, 15 hours of swimming, not walking, swimming, she did something she'd never done before. She asked her guide boats that were with her to pull her out of the water. She was exhausted physically and emotionally. And so they pulled her up. And when she got into the boat, she learned that she was a half a mile from the shore. And to reporters later that day, she told them that she just thought she was swimming in circles because she couldn't see her destination anymore. And that if she could have seen the coastline, she believes she would have finished. Maybe that's where many of us are at right now. We're not finishing strong because we've stopped seeing the coastline. Maybe for many of us, times have gotten so difficult. Days have gotten so dark that we've just been unable to see where we're headed. And maybe as we close out this year, by focusing on that eternal destination, we can be encouraged to finish strong and not give up too early. I don't know where you're at in your journey of faith right now, but you may be on the cusp of giving up because things have just gotten so difficult. Let me encourage you not to. Let me encourage you to fix your eyes on heaven. Remember the goal for which you are striving. And let me encourage you to seek the help of your fellow swimmers, if you will, of your fellow journeymen. Let us go to bat for you in prayer. Let us hold you up and let us encourage one another to finish strong. Maybe your journey of faith has not begun yet because you have not become a child of God. Well, it can begin today by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. See, I don't know where you're at in your journey, but I know that there's an answer for it. And it starts by us fixing our eyes on heaven. If you have any need to respond to the invitations today, we encourage you to do so while together we stand and sing this song. I'm pressing Paul.